Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. ever briefly looked something up and found yourself interested to the point of distraction, passing into some realm that, once entered, is extremely hard to get out of. It might be coffee shops, or Ulaanbaatar, or Cary Grant, or Vegemite, or the Bikini, or Little and Large, but the more you look, the further down the rabbit hole you go. If so, you've come to the right place. Welcome to The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, the disembodied voice pronounces a winner. Do you know where the figurative term rabbit hole comes from, though? I don't know. It sounds kind of an obvious one, doesn't it? That if he was kind of going after information, then like a ferret down a rabbit hole might be a nice way of describing it. Yeah. Would a ferret go down a rabbit hole? Yes, that's what they do. <laughs> that's what they do. Yeah. That's what they enjoy most, I think. Also, yes, it's the idea that you go down something with one clear intention and then get diverted. I think, yes, I think it's perfect for what we're trying to do. Yeah. In the old days, people had warreners, didn't they? I stayed in a house once, it was a warreners house, and he was the guy on a big estate who looked after all the rabbits and the rabbit warrens for the table. Yeah. So it's yeah. a rich source of nutrition as well. That's true. Mm. Normans brought them over. Did they? Yes, they had set areas where they would pen the rabbits and then, you know, you didn't have them, you didn't want them getting out, so you kept them in a, a stiff, bottomed pen and was it prestige meat or was it for everybody you know it was very difficult particularly in the winter to get fresh meat and so the rabbits were very important and you'd have your doves in the dovecote you'd have your fish in the stew pond and they were easy sources of protein in the cooler months i presumably the fur as well you do the rabbit fur wouldn't yes you? yeah i suppose so I because like if you're into fur better. you want a bigger beast than a rabbit don't you a you do all special or... special colors so you have the white ermine fur and then black foxes and so these are traded everywhere because of the color well, also nice. you know that's one of the reasons that canada opened up was looking for the beaver pelts because in an era before umbrellas you needed something very waterproof but isn't that you know the things you don't see anymore white dog poo being the famous one fur coats. I can remember in the 70s, 
in sort of posh places, you would see a fur coat, but you'd never see it now, do you? In sort of Hungary and Central Europe you do, but not in London. You get a lot of red paint thrown at you. Yes. There you go. <laughs> so can I just check, did you just check, say white dog poo? Well, I think I missed that. Well, <laughs> well, thing, people this? always say things you don't see anymore, like yeah. spangles or puffer puffer rice. People say white dog poo. And I can remember when I was a kid uncollected dog poo left at the side of the road would go white. I don't know if that was to do with the diet of dogs or simply that people didn't pick up and throw away. Mostly in my bin, as a matter of fact, because I live on a place which is frequented by walkers and dogs. But I remember that. You know, you'd walk along a street in London and you'd have to keep an eye out for that, for dog poo, and not anymore, hopefully. If only we'd invested in the poo bag. (laughs) Is it too late? (laughs) I think we actually have our disembodied voice has got the answer to this dog poo question. Richard's right. It was down to diet. Indigested calcium, commercial dog food that was rich in beef and bone meal, which had a high calcium content when calcium requirements were changed, as did the colour. There you are. Progress. Right. So let's get on to it because we've got our topics to talk about. And I set Charles the task of telling us everything he could possibly find out about this topic, which is time zones. Mm. It's such a surprising set of topics, really, time zones. The most surprising thing to me that I found out was that China has one time zone, and so does India. They have one each, which is very awkward if you're 3,000 kilometers to the west of Beijing and you're having the same time as the capital. It's very unusual. And in fact, you'll find that local areas will uh, object to this and carry on with their own idea. So there's an Assam tea time zone in India, for instance, which was actually set by the British Empire to give an extra few daylight hours for the tea pickers to go by. So not just here that they start messing around with time in order to... No, there's 79 countries that change their clocks uh, every year, twice a year. And even in those countries, there are some objectors. So the state of Arizona and the state of Hawaii, they don't change theirs. Saskatchewan in Canada got in a bit of a muddle about it all and they have a provincial right not to agree to everything that's going on so they've dug their heels in the one i really find staggering is china so china has essentially got very nearly the same breadth as the united states and we know how many time zones there are there are four main time zones in the united states obviously forgetting hawaii and the, and the further flung regions and in fact there's been a movement in the last decade to try and bring it down to two to make it more sort of uniform and to help the way of the world, really, mainly in commerce. And actually, the whole thing with time zones all stems from a very real problem, which was there was a Scottish-Canadian called Sandford Fleming. Uh, It started off life in Kirkcaldy and Fife, ended up as an engineer in Canada, and he missed a train because before he brought in a sort of time zone that would work across a continent and around the world you were going by very, very localised measurements of time. And really, every town just went on its own high noon. And you could get 3,000 different time zones in the Chicago area of America, for instance. Originally, was it before the standardisation of time? Time would be locally designed. Often it was around monastic communities for the ringing of bells for the offices, so matins, lords, and so on, and even so on. And people would time their day accordingly because it would be a marker of time. It's all they needed. Yes, you had a jeweller in all the towns that officially would become the timekeeper. In a large town or a city, you might have several, a dozen or so, who are all setting their own time. 
and it became a complete mess. Of course, it didn't really matter until you were relying on a train timetable because you could get very confused very quickly. So it's really so, kind of when people start moving about so much more and much more quickly because mm. then you have to be at the right place at the right time. Well, that's interesting because in the Soviet Union, where I travelled a bit before it became Russia, and I don't know if it's the same now, the railway ran on one time. I mean, this, I, think, I can't remember how many time zones in Russia, but the railway all ran on one time because they just needed something standard, I guess. So mm. you could be in Irkutsk or Novosibirsk and you'd be on the same time as St. Petersburg or Leningrad as it was then. And it's the same, actually, with some of our great institutions. So the Met Office and the Navy and BBC World Service all run on Greenwich Mean Time. And I was fascinated to learn how Greenwich got the big one, really. And it was because in the 17th century, Charles II was a great amateur scientist and loved mechanics. I mean, he had 12 clocks in his bedroom, Ooh. which must have been very disturbing for his 50 <laughs> mistresses, which we so, know he had. No sleep for them. <laughs> no sleep. <laughs> but essentially, he, he got the uh, Royal Observation Centre going at Greenwich. And the first astronomer general, Michael Flamsted, took that as the mark of the sort of centre, longitudinally, of the world. And I guess for navigation, for a seagoing empire, or proto-empire, or empire on the way, then accuracy of timekeeping was essential for navigation, although not in the Viking lands, Kat. No, you didn't know. You just had to be on your ship at the right time and then know when to strike those monasteries, <laughs> I suppose. You're absolutely right there, Richard. So 72% of the of seafaring maps in the 19th century were British and therefore we ended up with this, that, that being the dominant uh, force. I think we have more facts coming up from our 11 voice. time zones in Russia. 11 time zones. Very complicated. Second most in the world. Which country has the most? Canada. Russia. Oh, it'll be an empire. It'll be France or something. Yes. Oh, yes. Really? yes. So command and control cultures and political settlements like the Soviet Union, you could command that everyone kept Moscow time for the mm. rail network, I guess. But in federal America, maybe it's harder to set a standard time because the states are so used to doing their own thing. Yes, you can impose things. I mean, if you think... So in China, I think um, Mao Zedong set the time as, as being one time zone in, in 1948. And 20 years later, he tried to get rid of the four great pests in China with rather less happy results, the, the rats, the mosquitoes, the flies and the sparrows. So he had this obliteration of the sparrows across the nation and then ended up with a great famine, the second worst famine that anyone's ever had in history, where perhaps 55 million people died. And it was a vicious old thing because the Polish embassy refused to join in with the killing of sparrows and became a bit of a sanctuary. But the Chinese <laughs> beat their drums outside for so long that the sparrows dropped dead of exhaustion and they, were, they had to be uh, moved out of the Polish embassy by the spadeful. I've never heard of such a thing. <laughs> no, absolutely <laughs> not. Fascinating. Why did that cause a famine though? Why did Because the, the grasshoppers and the oh, caterpillars okay. had a bit of an easy time of it. It upset, yeah. completely upended the natural order of things. They poisoned them, they broke the eggs, they absolutely annihilated the sparrow population because they were worried. I, I think a sparrow eats two kilos of corn a a month or something and they just thought well let's eliminate that then we'll have more corn but you can't mess around with nature like that so I guess when... emperors and tyrants and communist party general secretaries have the power don't they to mm. inflict whatever caprice or whim dressed up as an ideological thing it's control you're right I think mm. I went to somewhere with not much control when I was a foreign correspondent I went to Tonga and stayed in the International Dateline Hotel <laughs> And I had the joy of doing a piece to camera for NBC with Tuesday on my left and Wednesday on my right. 
They sound like Bond lovelies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. It's a different story. So you were literally <laughs> straddling Tuesday and I, Wednesday. Honestly, I had them both in shot behind me. And I met the king of Tonga, actually. He was a wonderful man, a rather larger, larger build of a gentleman. And I was told by his chief of protocol, don't mention the king's weight, you know, as if I would. And he was charming. We were having a chat and he said, I'm on a diet, by the way. So I looked suitably surprised and said, oh, that's most strange. And he said, well, my doctor says I can only eat two yams a day. And I went, oh, that sounds a bit tough. And he went, no, 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 a yam can be six feet long. So he was very happy with his regimen. <laughs> The yam diet. Very good. King of Tonga was the heaviest monarch ever. Died in 2006, weighing 440 pounds. So he was a big chap. He was a lovely man. Very nice. He went to my sister's wedding and then got lured up to Scotland in a house party full of Scottish snobs who were competing about their ancestry. And the king coughed politely at the end of this conversation and said, I too have some Scottish blood. And everyone looked at him, you know, thought this is very peculiar claim and he went grandfather at a missionary it's <laughs> <laughs> very good as to the time thing I, I also want to mention that basically what happened with the time zones is that sanford fleming basically divided up the world into 24 strips of 15 degrees and it was only a, really in the 18th century that people managed to get a grip of longitude and it was all judged from Greenwich as well. So it gave ship's captains on their chronometer an idea of how far they had gone. I wonder if it also, like cartography, has shaped our view of the world and where the important centres in the world are. So, you know, the sort of representation of Northern Europe as somehow being weirdly bigger mm. than it is in actuality simply because it's at the centre of the projection. I wonder if time zones do that too. GMT gives... Britain a sort of prestige or something that it so otherwise wouldn't we're in the center and some are yeah. head and behind yeah yeah there's the sort of psychology of that isn't there psychology of time and space but I I think I was very surprised when given this topic I thought GMT was still the universal standard and it isn't for most of the world it's the coordinated universal time or UCT because it's in its French form that is what dominates the world. We are still obsessed with GMT because it is our time outside of British summertime. Really? So it's not nearly as front and centre as we think it is where as Brits. Where does UCT so, live? Say, where does that? I don't actually know that because I wasn't set that task. So Only I we had a see some voice. fingers typing on a keyboard <laughs> yeah. over in the distance here now. It sounds like a sort of French thing. Do you think it's in the Académie Française? Well, something? anything diplomatic like that gets a French name, doesn't it, I suppose? Because that's the language of diplomacy. Not, yes. Not English. Yeah. Well, but GMT was railway time. It was adopted as railway time in 1847 and then became Britain's standard legal time in 1880. This would be a nightmare for you, Charles, because you, like me, are notoriously punctual. <laughs> so if there weren't standard time, would you spend your whole time fretting and turning up a day early for things? When I got married, I took my wife, Karen, to something quite glamorous. And I said, you'll never have a boring time with me. And she said, in reply, she said, only in a lot of airports, because I'm always dragging her there early. So, no, I am absolutely hopeless about that. I, I, we actually travel to the airport separately now, because I'm all neurotic, and she just breezes on the plane as the wheels are moving. We used to do, I mean, David, actually, because he, he would be very relaxed about timing, and I would be a, a super obsessed about it. So we used to travel separately, although he was once eight days late for a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> Did that, you make it? Can I say... Just when they standardized time, people were 
outraged across the world in various pockets because they thought they were losing minutes of their life. Just as oh. when the calendar changed, oh, the people thought they were going to lose days of their oh. life. There were riots, weren't there, about yes. going to, from Julian to Gregorian because people thought they'd been deprived of their yes, they would lives, lose days part of their, their lives. lives. And also, I must say, if I'm allowed to just mention, I mentioned that high noon was the standard time. You could see where the sun, when the sun was at its peak in your community. And that, obviously, 70 years ago, that wonderful movie High Noon came out. And that was... I'm going into a rabbit hole here, but it was one of the great movie inventions. Fred Zinnemann made it, and it was really set at real time. You know, you start at 10.45, and it takes you till 12.15, pretty much in real time. And it's you see all those references to it getting to noon with the sun high in the cloud. And that would have been the same. That noon wouldn't have been the same as the one an hour west in New Mexico. I've got a question. If you come from a Nordic country mm-hmm. with dense cloud cover, maybe, and not much sunlight... yeah. You can't really just look at a sundial, can you, if you have no Well, sun. no, because if you're in the northern part of Norway, there's no sun at all. There's one little town, actually, where, because they get no sunlight at all in the winter, they've put a big mirror up in the town centre, up in the mountains. So there's a huge big mirror so that they'll get a little bit of sunlight in sort of the winter months. Well, and the town square light? focuses the light into the centre so, so you that you can the... go into the town square and you can get a bit of daylight in the winter. That's you never get it. No but let's try and round that up. So, Charles, which would you say was your favourite single fact that you found out about time zones? It's just a very quirky thing. I didn't realise that there was, outside of uh, Greenwich Mean Time, the original clock that was presented to the public is a 24-hour one. It's much more practical. You know, you, couldn't, you didn't want to get AM and PM confused. And so I, I'm determined to go and see that. You know, it's fantastic to be set a, a subject as quirky as this because there's an awful lot of follow-up and I want to go and pay my pilgrimage to that clock. So, Charles, you chose a topic for Richard. Yes. What did you set him? Well, Richard's been a personal traitor to me. He's left the wonderful county of Northamptonshire for the southern, well, I'd say rather soft county of Sussex and one of the things when I think of Sussex I think of seasides so I thought I'd ask Richard to have a look at the seaside with his bucket and spade. So glad to be asked actually because it's interesting I have gone from Northamptonshire which is about as far as you can get from the sea in these islands to live within half a mile of the sea now near to Eastbourne which is English seaside town par excellence, I suppose. Quite unusual. The thing I first noticed about Eastbourne when I got there, and I've never lived at the seaside before, was that it's two towns. You have the town, which is recognisable as any other town. And then there's this second town, which is the town that was built to face the sea and the beach, the resort town, built actually by the Cavendish family, the Dukes of Devonshire, who were famously enterprising. Well, their farm shop today is famously enterprising. But they developed not just Eastbourne, but Buxton, as other ways of earning a few quid, I suppose. And it's interesting, there is a Northamptonshire connection in a way, Charles, because although we are as far from the sea as you can get in England, 70 miles or thereabouts, going to the sea for reasons other than seafaring began really as a sort of therapeutic exercise. And that was the taking of water's hydrotherapy in one form or another. Wellingborough in Northamptonshire, my nearest town to my last parish of Finding, was famous for its wells. And I think in the reign of Charles I or Charles II, people would go to Wellingborough to take the waters. People famously went to Bath to take the waters. But as the market for that kind of thing increased with the rising wealth of the middle classes and then later the kind of upper working classes, they too sought the amusements and distractions and also benefits 
of that sort of hydrotherapy. But rather than go to Bath, which was impossible, inaccessible, they went to the seaside. You see it beginning in the sort of uh, middle years of the 18th century and then much more development in the 19th century. And then the development of mass transport trains, which of course changed not only time zones, but also made parts of the world accessible that hadn't been accessible before. And because we have, I think, in Britain, 9,000 miles of coast, and you're only 70 miles from it, it was just an easy thing to do. When I was growing up in Kettering, Shoetown, in the 1970s, there was still factory fortnight, and all the factories would kick out, and there'd be special trains that would take everyone to Hunstanton, because Hunstanton, if you were from Northamptonshire, was the resort where you would go. If you were in the hosiery trade in Leicester, you would go to Skegness. And so the whole town, Kettering, went to Hunstanton. They printed the Kettering Evening Telegraph in Hunstanton. That's amazing. Because everybody was there, including mm. my family, um, who were shoe manufacturers. But all the shoe manufacturers went as well, but to the more genteel ends of the resort. So Old Hunstanton, Ringstead, those villages in North Norfolk now, well, the shoe manufacturers would have their summer cottages there. Mm. Mm. And, of course, the beach huts at Hunstanton. But do you know how beach huts began? Well, can I just pick you up there? So my family used to go every summer for a couple of months from the local train station directly to North Norfolk. And I met a woman about 30 years ago, and she was 100, and she remembered the train coming in. And you're thinking of these very remote Norfolk villages, not seeing an awful lot of coming and goings. And the girls of the village would wait behind hedges to see the male members of staff, the footmen, to see if they were handsome. They're like visiting rock stars. Who rub their hands together. Yes. In anticipation. Yes, yeah. Fresh blood. But no, so the beach hut... Well, the a... beach hut, they're abandoned bathing machines. Mm. Because when bathing was sort of offered to people as a sensible therapeutic thing to do, that bathing in seawater would be good for you. It wasn't recreation, it was therapy, really. But of course, it would have been utterly scandalous. We're talking about the 1750s and onwards from there now. For especially uh, men and women of gentility to expose their bodies. Yes. So they would have these little wooden huts on wheels and they would climb into them and then change out of their day clothes into very elaborate bathing costumes which covered just as much. And then they would be wheeled by horses, normally drawn by horses, down actually into the sea. Mm. And there were these women known as dippers who would open up the front of the bathing carriage and escort the people out and sometimes quite forcefully uh, make sure that they got totally submerged in the healthful waters of Margate was very early. But yeah. are they swimming or are they just yeah. standing in the water? Standing in the water. Yes. I mean, there were... So could people swim at that at a time, do you think? It did, is that more recent? Well, it certainly wasn't a medieval thing. I mean, also, I... I... I looked at the white ship recently, which was the great sort of Titanic of the 12th century, and nobody could swim. So when you hit a rock, you were finished. And of course, nobody knew what was under the water uh, until very recently. So there was just this sort of terror of not only of drowning, but of all the creatures that must exist underneath the waves, which you wouldn't see. And you look at the old maps from the Middle Ages, and there's every conceivable animal waiting to devour you under the water. And for us, it seems quite natural to go to Hunstanton or Western Supermare or wherever it may be, New Brighton, Blackpool, Filey, Scarborough, with our buckets and spades and disport ourselves on the sand building, sand castles and paddling. But it took a long time before people started thinking about the 
beach and the sea as a place you would go for entertainment. It was, it was somewhere you should avoid because it was where mm. sailors, smugglers, wreckers hung out. So it was kind of dangerous territory, liminal territory. And then people started going for the health benefits. And I think it must have changed then. People started getting on terms with it. Sailors, famously, of the Royal Navy didn't swim. And if they if you yes, overboard, you had it, you had you? Yes. Yeah. And then it used to be, so men used to bathe it wasn't a family thing because the sexes were so ruthless. Do you know, up until the 1930s, people were being prosecuted in England for lewdness, for mixed bathing, actually. Goodness. So that was very strictly policed. And so men would bathe in groups of men, but they would often be men who were like students or people in the same profession, and they would bathe naked. Yeah. They would get undressed in a bathing machine and then be released into the waters naked. Yeah. There's some famous film, I don't know if you've seen it, of the Russian imperial family yes. bathing oh, naked. Yes. In a way which seems rather shockingly explicit to us who are used to seeing people dressed up in uniforms but obviously they were very unselfconscious about it my grandmother who was born in 1901 remembered when she was a little girl she was the youngest of 13 she had an older sister who was married who lived at west cliff on sea which was the kind of posh end of south end and she remembers going there it must have been a bank holiday week bank holidays came in the 1870s an excuse for London to decant those who had the means to do it to resorts to have a, a knees up. And she remembers walking from Westcliff to South End. And it must have been one of those weekends because she realised that her older sister and her brother-in-law were all flustered and embarrassed and were shielding her eyes. And she realised much later that the streets were full of people who'd been shagging all night, that the bus shelters were full of drunk cockneys who had been having this magnificent knees up, slap and tickle, bag of whelks and everything and um, and she only realized when she was older she realized that that's what had happened that people went and had lots and lots and lots of fun which is why blackpool was so important to the industrial populations of the northwest after the industrial revolution did it remain the seaside remain this great lure until cheap overseas flights is that it is that when they went under i think so the great sort of seaside resorts waned after after that when people were you know mass cheap transport enabled people to go to hotter more glamorous places. Yes. But you know the other thing, if you walk around Eastbourne, the developed part of Eastbourne that the Cavendish developed, you think it's Beeritz. It looks like one of those great sort of Edwardian resorts yes. on the Atlantic or the Mediterranean coast in the south of France or somewhere like that. Actually, they were copying Eastbourne. The sort of promenade, the Cannes, all that kind of thing, the Riviera. It was an English model, not entirely that. I'm painting with broad brushstrokes here but essentially this idea of developing the resort was an english idea which is why you can go in montevideo in uruguay they have a bandstand and crazy golf and all these sorts of things <laughs> that you associate with the english seaside was a very successful export all around the world and the saucy humor came from this the sort of be the postcard humor of the seaside as well well another interesting thing was was that on the beach there was a natural leveling because people divested themselves of their clothes, and clothes were very often an indicator of social class or hierarchy. And so there's a whole, a whole trope of English fiction, uh, sorry, of English comedy, the source of Frank Gill Postcard, for example, and part of that is because all of a sudden those kind of reassuring constraints of social class were lifted, and that led to all kinds of social comedy. So let's hear it for the seaside. It's very good. And if you were going to pick your favourite fact that you discovered about the seaside, which would that be? Well, it's an Eastbourne fact, actually. Uh, and I discovered that the French composer Claude Debussy 
was inspired to write the piano prelude Minstrels when he was staying at the Grand in Eastbourne. So there you go. Little did you know, didn't know that, that French Impressionist <laughs> music was inspired by Eastbourne. Fantastic. Did not know that. Um, Thank you. It's your go, Kat. And I've been thinking yeah. very much about what we might set you. And then, of course, there's something so so fundamental to our culture, indeed our civilization, that to ignore it would be a crime. And that is the paperclip. Yes. How could we possibly get through the day without the paperclip? That is a good question. <laughs> and it is a really, really interesting topic. And when you start researching it, you can go into the history of the paperclip. So you can go into the inventions and the patents and, and try and find out who actually invented it. Do you know when it was invented in the first place? I'm, I'm going to think when the office really took off. So 1910s? I'd say earlier, 1880s. It is earlier than that, yes. So the paperclip was first patented in the 1860s, actually. But there's all these people who argue about who was actually the real person to, to paint it. And I have to say that my sort of personal link to this is when I was growing up in Norway, we learned about all our big heroes, the Vikings and Amundsen and all the people who've gone out to the world and done big things. And we learned that actually it was a Norwegian who'd invented the paperclip. So one of these well, hang on. special heroes. Yeah. Nor tell me about which Norwegian invented the paperclip. So what we were told was that it was a man called Johan Valid who had invented it. So this, this is a sort of common fact in Norway. Actually, there was no patent office. So he had invented something, but it wasn't, he didn't know what was going on um, and the rest of the, the world. So yeah, he wasn't actually the first one at all. But the reason why that became important and why it became a sort of big national legend really was uh, in the Second World War, because the paperclip actually became a symbol of the resistance against the Nazis in Norway. So Norway was occupied and to sort of symbolise your resistance, they started wearing all sorts of things. There were lots of things they weren't allowed to, to have, like this insignia of the the king, um, various sort of flag things weren't allowed. So people started wearing red top hats, which they cottoned onto quite quickly. Well, <laughs> yes, yes, what's that? I, I don't really know. I think sort of the knitted hat was a uh, cultural thing, okay. but it was also quite obvious. So then they chose the paperclip. So you would wear a paperclip on your clothes. So that became this sort of huge big symbol. And the Germans um, never cracked that one. Unfortunately, they did. I think it looked a little bit odd. To but be what a lovely little act of protest to put an item of stationery. I think so. Yes. A little sort of a little sort of fun fact. It's like in so Italy in the 1860s with the move towards Italian nationalism, people would go and to Verdi performances and shout "Viva Verdi, Viva Verdi!" because Verdi, the initials were Vittorio Emanuele Re d'Italia. So oh. you were cheering an opera, but at the same time you were cheering the Italian king. Yeah. Very good. Very but it came, became a sort of a, a bigger thing as well. And so there's been all these later projects, school projects, school kids um, in America collecting paper clips, literally millions uh, of paper clips to symbolise the Holocaust, so to sort of represent all the, the people who died in the Holocaust. But then there's all these other links as well to, to the Second World War, especially. There was uh, something called Operation Paperclip. Have you ever heard of no, Operation never. Paperclip? No. This was uh, starting in the Second World War, again, with interest in trying to get scientists and researchers actually out of Nazi Germany. So there was this huge, big American and British project to try and get the, the best brains, essentially, and they, I think about 1,300 scientists were taken out of Germany and to America and actually bringing all these clever brains and inventions with them to try and sort of 
stop it going in the wrong hands. Well, I think the disembodied voice might have something to tell us. I do. One of the most well-known recruits to Operation Paperclip was uh, Werner von Braun, who was the technical director who developed the V2 rocket that devastated much of England. And he went on to be the architect of the Saturn V launch vehicle. There you go. Mm. As a sort of triumph of design and engineering, the paperclip is difficult to beat, isn't it? It's, it's an so amazing yeah. It's like the key, you know, whoever thought of it first. It's an incredibly easy invention, yeah. isn't it, when you think about it now. But, in, I mean, to bring the first one into being, so imaginative and clever. And just a bent bit of wire. Did, did it always look pretty much like what it looks like? No, this is a whole patent thing as well. as a different shape. So some are just, just sort of almost like a staple that's just close together. The clever one is this this sort of double leap. That's the one that became oh, our paperclip today. Because I did know that in France they're called trombone because they uh-huh. look like trombones. Mm. Oh, Indeed, interesting, they do. yeah. So I wondered if quite early on that shape was standardised. It became quite quickly. And then also one of the companies uh, called the Gem Paperclip. So that word, gem in Swedish, is actually the name for paperclip from that company that first made it so they kept to that i had to remember when i got my first flat i went to habitat in the days when you did that sort of thing and bought my black ash desk in the days you did this sort of thing i'm talking the 80s here folks and i bought for my desk which was covered with filofaxes and that kind of thing a great big jar of paper clips a huge jar of paper clips and i wondered how long it would take for me to get through that jar of 35 years. Yes, because they always reassemble. I I always keep them. I don't know if it's a sign of great meanness. I think it's respect for the design of it. I keep any spare paper clips. I never recycle them away. Will we still continue to use them, though, do you think? Are we going to go so digital that we will lose the paper clip? Well, I suppose the stapler is quite... (laughs) The stapler (laughs) took a lot of the business away, didn't it? But they're so... The thing I love about the the paper clip is it's robust and it always works. Yeah. Staplers... It's They're so like annoying. Southern Rail, maybe one in three. <laughs> <laughs> I think something you... I like a lot, and, I, and I'm worried that this is going, we're not going to see it again, it's the Treasury tag. What is that? Oh, is that the, is that the sort of thread with the two little... Green bit of thread yeah. with yes. two metal bars yes, on yeah. either end. They're called Treasury tags. I presume they originated in the Treasury, that's why. Mm. They're just really, really good for kind of loosely holding together documents. Simple idea again, but it just really works. Yes. The only time I've ever used those is in exams. Really? Yeah. They had to use them in the exams to, to, to tie them together exams. because with a paperclip, they could come apart, but these fasten them together. So I think that's the other where thing they're especially useful. A truth we must face, difficult though it is, is that when a paperclip fails, it has catastrophic yes. consequences. Mm-hmm. I want to see a paperclip factory now. I want to see it mm. Yeah. I've got a little diagram of the, the first patent of a, a machine that was actually bending it. It's kind of three so you've got a long piece of wire and then you've got three little protruding things that it bends around it and then it moves through so the wire moves through and it bends in exactly the right shape genius and is the paperclip still looked on with great fondness in norway for nationalistic reasons (laughs) we do so people i think i mean it depends if if my people in my country are going to listen to this they might have their illusions shattered and they might also not (laughs) We have big statues of, of paper clips and things around just to just to be sort of very proud of it. Well, do you remember when Microsoft started and Microsoft helped us a little Clippy. Paper- oh, this, yeah. I was going to talk about Clippy. Oh, do you know about Clippy? No, I don't know about Clippy. Just thought of it just then. Yes. Do you know about Clippy, Charles? No, I don't. Clippy's new to oh, me. Oh, Clippy. So Clippy, back when, um, I think it was about 1997 or so, Microsoft Word 
had these assistants. So you would be typing your documents and they decided that to help guide people through using this new technology, they were going to have little characters. And I think at first they started with somebody called Bob, but then Bob had lots of assistants. He had a little dog and then a paperclip. So these would pop up with little suggestions and it'd say things like, looks like you're writing a letter. Would you like to see a template? But that's interesting because it, the, early on in those days of that sort of digital interface, people thought we would always like to have a cute thing. Whereas yeah. now, just give me the information. It's so right? true. We've I cut don't want to have a relationship with a paperclip. Exactly. Well, this was, this was part of the problem. It was also because it never got to know you. So Clippy uh, never adjusted to what you were doing. So every time you wrote a letter, say, would you like to learn how to write a <laughs> letter? But he did so his people best. Got very he was annoyed. He survived hardest. about 10 years, but people very much love to hate Clippy. <laughs> it's become a sort of Paquettian nightmare now, Clippy, mm. hasn't it, of the... The friend who never listens to what you say or what you want. Yeah. Although I feel like when I write, I should I could actually do with a little sort of passive aggressive assistant on the screen there. Who I says, can help you with that, Cat. <laughs> can you send me little messages? <laughs> Looks like you're on Twitter, Cat. <laughs> you should be writing. I've got something to tell you, which you probably know anyway, but it's not going to please you. Is it not? Okay. Well, I have a friend called Arnfin, who is Norwegian like you. And Arnfin, I knew him when he lived in London, he now lives in Berrien, but he used to wear national dress on Norway Day. Yes, yeah. Completely unselfconsciously, which I thought was was marvellous. And he would bang on all day about famous Norwegians, like Mr. Paperclip, whose name I've forgotten. But he used to go on and on about Grieg, of course, as the great you know, composer of Norway. And then I found out that Grieg was actually more Scottish than Norwegian. <gasps> Did you know that? No. Have I said a terrible thing? You have. Grieg was originally Greg, and they were merchants who came from, I think, Aberdeen. I think it was something to do with the Hansa, probably, and ended up as a sort of trade consul in Oslo. And the name got Norwegianized because they married into Norway and became Grieg. But they were originally Gregs of Scotland. So you're talking in several generations back, really. Not when through the Hansa or through trade. Yeah. You would have lots of... I noticed when I went to Tallinn in Estonia, you would look in the churches and there'd be lots of memorials to Scottish merchants yeah. who presumably were just doing that trade. Well, you had so much of that movement around, and places, especially on the western coast and places like Bergen were just hugely a part of the Hanseatic League and you'd get all these traders coming in, going Scots and staying. But the fantastic travellers, weren't yeah. they? I mean, of course, what there's some forced... <laughs> enforced movement but also you know look i mean that sanford fleming who we had at the the man who essentially invented modern time yeah was a, a displaced scot as well you mentioned assam earlier yes and i was in assam a few years ago and i was staying on a tea station up in the hills there which is very very beautiful mm. and all the machinery was cast iron and in the fretwork it all had the manufacturer which was glasgow yes who manufactured for empire wasn't it yes, the engine of empire. yeah that's a shock isn't it that's a shocker I think I'm going to have to have a little lie down now <laughs> to actually I digest think you this. Thoroughly Norwegian. Read some Ibsen to cheer you up. <laughs> I think that would not <laughs> work. Swedish language that would do it. Ibsen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just yeah, no, no. I want to. Well, you know, I'm fascinated by Quisling. Yes. He so wouldn't have worn a paperclip, would he? He would not. No, he would be very much against the paperclip. So this is our, our traitor who betrayed the entire country and essentially and gave, gave it to his the, name to yes. traitors everywhere. Yeah, so that's that is the name. And you're not it's, you're not allowed to to call the name is illegal as a surname. So if you were Quisling, if you were originally a Quisling, you'd, yeah, you'd be have something to else. Change. You can't have that so name. But interesting. Why did Quisling? Because there are plenty of examples of treason in any mm. conflict. But why did Quisling? Do you think become the the name that we now attach to anyone. I don't know. It's a very good question. I suppose it just it was seen like such 
a uniquely big betrayal, I suppose, for the entire country. Well, there was plenty of French. I mean, Pétain did the same, didn't he? Well, different, but the same, in that he betrayed the French, essentially, by serving the, the Third Reich. Is it not the case, historian, <laughs> that treason is largely a matter of dates? That's so true, isn't it? It depends whose side you're on. If you think of one of the many civil wars we've had, you know, whether it's the War of the Roses or the Anarchy of the 12th century or uh, the Civil War of the 17th century, uh, it depends whose side you're on at a particular time. There was one man, a Scottish lord, who changed side four times in the English Civil War in the 1640s and 50s and eventually lost his head because he just he was on the wrong side at the wrong time. You have a lot of them in the Viking Age as well. So a lot of the... Both the Scandinavians go back and forth, and some of the English as well go and betray Ethelred the Unready and will yes. go over to the it's other side. I mean, if the white ship hadn't sunk, for example, maybe the anarchy wouldn't have happened. Well, if the white ship hadn't have sunk, presumably the Norman dynasty would have continued and we wouldn't have got the Plantagenets for a very long time. They were mid-12th century till the Tudors took over. Good thing or bad thing, Plantagenets? Well, very different. So... I think essentially, you know, you as a man of the cloth, I think we, we may well have got the Reformation sooner and we probably wouldn't have been involved in Europe, the Central Europe as much or mainland Europe as much. We were dragged in to all the French wars, the Hundred Years' War, etc., through the Plantagenets taking it. Or even if it had been the custom for people to learn to swim in those days. Could yeah. been a <laughs> mm, that would have been useful. Could Vikings swim? Yes, I think they could. There's, we definitely know from some of the sagas, they talk about swimming. And it's such a maritime culture. You have to be able to, because you're moving by boat all the time. So I think it's really... But we're trying to find out, if you haven't got written records, how do you find out? So the only thing... Now, I was really interested in a few years ago trying to see if there's any other way of finding out if you haven't got written records or art or anything like that. So one of the things looking at diving especially, there's some changes that can happen in your ear. So with ear infections and things like that, if you do a lot of swimming, you know, you can get ear infections. If you get a lot of water in your ear, especially deep sea diving affects your ears. Well, also, if you're in cold water a lot, yeah. your ear grows an internal bone as a protection. Precisely, this is it. So you can look I at a, old... Yeah populations and look at skeletons and look for that to try and find out brother-in-law who surfs for canada and he's grown great extra bones in his ear no yeah because so it's pretty chilly a... in canada and that's like reacting in a single life in, a, yes. in an yeah. organism to that's extraordinary and you can see it so one of those main reasons so if you look at ancient populations and you look for exactly that sort of thing then you can try and see people are doing a lot of swimming did you know that the word quizzling is not used in the united states do you I know didn't why know that why? Because the American term for a traitor is a Benedict Arnold, which is the name of a Revolutionary War turncoat. They have their own traitor. Yeah. And so rather like Eastern Standard Time or yes. UCT, whatever it is. They've insisted. There you go. Everyone's got to have their own. Mm. Judas covers the lot. Though, doesn't Who would ours be? Well, there's a contested one because some would say <laughs> Cromwell, wouldn't they? And others wouldn't. Yeah. We haven't got one, have we? Guy Fawkes. Do you think? I rather like Guy yeah. Fawkes. But he had a rather the... splendid end, Guy Fawkes, because he'd had a pretty terrible time of torture in the Tower of London. And they were going to hang, draw and quarter him, which is all very gruesome. So you're hanged by the neck and then cut down while you're alive and revived and then castrated and disemboweled while you're alive. And he had had enough, really. So when he was taken to the top to be hanged, he jumped and broke his neck. Oh, so he dispatched himself. Yeah. That was a smart thing to do. A better way to go. Who was the most unfortunate of the regicides in terms of their ignominy uh, of his end? Clements, who had started life as a, a man of modest means, had got very rich under the time, the protectorate of Cromwell. And he went into hiding 
when the royalists return and were looking for the people who were responsible for killing Charles I. And he hid in a rather rundown part of London. But by this stage, he had very expensive tastes. And the authorities noticed very good food being brought to a very modest address. And when they broke the door down and came in, Clements was in this perfect disguise and he would have got away with it, except a blind man recognised his voice. So that's pretty bad luck. And then his family turned on him. They wanted to keep his wealth. So they said to him, just admit everything, because then you'll be dispatched, but you won't forfeit all your goods. And he was profoundly depressed for the last few days of his life, knowing that his family wanted him dead so they could keep his money. Well, I mean, it's a generous thing to have done, surely. He took one for the team. But uh, yeah, that blind man, imagine that. You think you've got away. It's like a (laughs) World War II movie. But a blind man recognises your voice. You're done. Did any of those who signed the death warrant who were alive at the Restoration survive? Yes. So there were 59 who signed the death warrant. And there were 80 regicides in all. So they included people who had been prosecuting the king who were on the scaffold when Charles I was executed. And quite a few of them had died in the 11 years between Charles I's execution and the return of Charles II. And several of them got away. One was very lucky, a man from Kent, who got to America and then found out that he had been registered as dead. So he lived a fairly open life under an assumed name. Because he was officially dead. Because he was officially dead. Others had terrible times because they handed themselves in, promised that everything would be okay. And then being kept prisoner in Tower of London was so awful. There's tales of one of them begging to be killed because he was so badly treated in the Tower. As Archbishop Lord remarked of Charles I, put not I trust in princes. So true. It's true, isn't it? We've gone through as many contortions as a piece of wire being fashioned <laughs> into a paperclip. We've thrown paperclips down a veritable warren of rabbit holes. I'm sorry about that. Well, I'm not sorry at all. I enjoyed it. But, Kat, you claimed, rashly, I feel, that Mr. Vale of Norway was the inventor of the paperclip. Mm. Can you back that up? No, so sadly he was not. Oh. So it really was. Well, for the current paperclip, the one we use is an American called William D. Middlebrook. So really, it's him that we should credit with it. But can I tell you my favourite fact, though, which is actually, I think it's going to give me nightmares, but I feel like I have to share that as well. In 2015, a dentist in Pennsylvania admitted to using paperclips as part of his root canal treatment. <laughs> Oh my God, that's so horrible. Have you had a root canal? I haven't had one. I've had one. And I don't think I want one with a paperclip. But I thought he got away with it for a very long time and nobody realised. They were just really cheap and easy and almost the right size. Goodness. So there we go. That's going to give me a nightmare. Thank you, Ken. Sorry. That's that's payback for Grig, actually. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. I think that's only fair. So we're quick. Greg. Yeah. Okay, so I think we've had some really quite impressive rabbit holes today. But... Every week, our disembodied voice is actually going to completely undemocratically choose a winner of all of these. So this week's winner, please. Charles. I blush. Actually, I don't really. No. I mean, (laughs) own it, Charles. (laughs) I will own it. But I actually think they were all fascinating. I mean, if, if a purpose of this conversation is to learn a lot, I really have today from your two and and it's it's fascinating really because i don't really think about paper clips i do think about <laughs> the seaside and yet i will now be thinking about both equally i can i just say i think we're going to be the most formidable pub quiz team whatever there was we keep yes. this up for a couple of weeks and very apt because charles for the next program i would like to give you as your topic 
pub names. Fantastic. Okay, thank you. Strong historical stuff there, I imagine. And I, Richard, would like to hear your take on burial rituals. Burial rituals. Mm. Certainly can. That's for next week. I'm also sending you soil words, Kat, if you wouldn't mind briefing us on fertiliser. Oh, okay. Excellent. Well, that's very because you and I, the fertiliser and burial customs are close relatives, aren't they? They are. I think there's some really good links there, actually. And then you go for the wake. Where do you go? To the local pub. There are some very, very ancient pubs in England. And I I want to look at when they started. So that'll be interesting. Huge controversy here. They they are. And so some of them are really not as old as they say they are. I should say, as Vicar of Finder, you know where you're going. I do. I've got my slot. I've got a family burial chamber. Yeah. My grandfather was called Satan by the Daily Mirror for tidying it up. Uh, he moved the bodies around and had some cremated, etc. Really? So you yeah. had to tidy up of the Spencer Vaults? Well, what happened? Nobody was really paying attention. They just shoved the next one in and it was all a bit of a clutter. Right. Well, I think we should all go and do our homework and find out okay. all about this for next week. But thank you, everyone, for listening to the podcast. And please do leave a review if you're out there. And tell us about some of the rabbit holes you'd like us to go down in future episodes. In the words of Lewis Carroll's Alice, we're all mad here. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.